So if you would, just please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 32 to 38. We're not going to really spend any time in depth on the first section, 30, 32 to 34. We're going to mostly focus on 35 to 38. But now, if you would look with me, Matthew chapter 9, verse 32. As is our custom, we will read through the text, and then we'll go to the Lord and ask for his assistance, his guidance as, uh, as we pray. And then we will we'll get to work and see what the Father has to say to us this morning. So if you would, look with me. Matthew chapter 9, verse 32. It says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute and was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord. And Father, we grieve. We, we look out at a city, a city that you love so dearly that you gave your son's life for it. And we know, Lord, that they don't know you. The vast majority of people living in Kamloops, they they haven't experienced the joy of a relationship with you, Father, and that, that moves us. And so, God, we are praying that you would begin a revival in this city. Lord, we pray, God, that you would begin to exalt your name all across Kamloops, all across British Columbia and the world, that you begin to lift your son high, so beautiful, so glorious, Lord, that it would draw all people to him. Lord, we are asking for revival, and we know that you achieve your purposes through your people, through the church. The harvest is plentiful, God, we know that. And we ask you, Father, send out laborers into the harvest. Send out people who can gather in the lost and harassed and helpless sheep who need to know you and need to have a relationship with you. Father, as we look at this text this morning, I pray, God, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand, to illuminate the scripture before us, Lord, that we could fully grasp exactly what it is that we're praying for. Help us to know, God, when we ask for a laborer, help us to know what it is that we're asking for. And finally, God, help us to be that laborer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in high school, in the summertime, I had a summer job that I usually worked at in which I, uh, I labored as a day laborer on a ranch. I worked with cattle, I worked with horses mostly. He had the odd group of goats here and there that the farmer worked with. And a large part of my summertime activities consisted of hauling in hay out of the field. That was actually the most lucrative part of my summertime job. I got paid 50 cents a bale. Now, to you out there, you're thinking, 50 cents a bale, that doesn't sound like a lot. It's a truckload, okay? Literally, it's a truckload of money because that's what you're doing. You're taking about a 30 to 45 pound heavy chunk of 
grass that's been cut and strapped together by wire, and you're hoisting it into the back of the trailer, and you're basically walking up and down fields all day long. And for every bale you hoist in the back of that trailer, you get paid 50 cents. And I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but the truth is I could clear as a young man with a strong back and a sort of insane desperation to sweat in that hot Texas sun, I could clear about $700, $800 a week doing that, which was pretty good money for, for a, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid. Now, I was talking actually last night to, uh, to Ryan Blindberg. He grew up on a farm just like me. I didn't grow up on a farm. I worked on farms. But he grew up on a farm uh, and, and had that sort, same sort of experience as I did. And uh, he was telling me that uh, he, he really enjoyed it. He mostly drove tractors around all day. And, and uh, when it did come time to baling hay, they had this giant chute, this sort of uh, conveyor belt that would take the hay up into, up into the top of the barn. And uh, he was telling me about all these fancy gizmos and gadgets. And he, he just sort of asked, he said, did you guys, did you guys have a conveyor belt that took hay up and stacked it in the top of the barn? I said, yeah. Yeah, we did. In fact, we had a name for our conveyor belt. Do you want to know what the name for the conveyor belt was? We called it Joshua Clay Camp. <laughs> that was what we called it. What we actually had was we had a plywood ramp that was the most rickety, dangerous, rotten thing you could imagine, and it kind of went up into the top of the barn, and I was responsible for putting the hay on my back with one of those baling hooks and dragging this thing up into, up into the top of the barn. We did it old-fashioned, like the back-breaking, if, if you could hurt yourself, like that's really the way we want to do it, um, and so we want to emphasize that, and so that's kind of how we did it. He had all kinds of tractors and fancy machinery that he got to use, but we didn't have that at all. Now, as I said, we got paid by the bale, okay? So not just anyone will do. You see, the fact that the farmer is offering to pay you by the bale indicates that he wants you to haul as much hay in as fast as you can because the more hay he can sock away in the shortest amount of time, the more hay he can grow in that exact same field. And so you can have multiple cuttings and multiple balings throughout the season. If you're slow and you don't get the job done fast enough, well, then his overall harvest is going to be diminished. And so he paid by the bale to create an incentive for me to get as much hay in as I possibly could. I was responsible for hiring my own crew, guys who would work with me. They made the same wage, 50 cents a bale. But I was particular about who worked with me. I didn't want individuals who were lazy. I didn't want individuals who would complain. I don't want individuals who, if they got a little splinter or a little hangnail or something like that, they'd have to go off and seek medical assistance and be gone half the day. I didn't want anything like that because at the end of the day, my bottom dollar depends upon my crew getting as many bales in out of the field as humanly possible. So I wanted people who worked hard. I want people who worked fast. And I was kind of cutthroat as a 16-year-old kid. Like, if I didn't feel you were towing the line, I would let you go. Like, on the, on the spot and hire somebody else. Now, that's not the Josh some of you, you know, but that's, uh, that's the money-hungry Josh of teenage years. That's, that's, what I, that's what I was like. You see, at the end of the day, the harvest was plentiful, and it could be even more plentiful. But the need was always for harvesters, good, hard-working, industrious harvesters. The prayer that I prayed at night was not, God, let there be a plentiful harvest. The prayer that I prayed at night was not, God, send me just anybody. The prayer I prayed, the thoughts that I had were these, give me good, hard-working harvesters.
just a few good men. I don't need a lot. In fact, if you have too many, you're working around each other, you're actually being counterproductive. What you're looking for is the right kind of people. Now, I believe that when we hear this passage preached, all too often what we hear is the harvest is plentiful, the harvest is plentiful, the harvest is plentiful. Go, 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 go. And that's, all, that's certainly true. The harvest is plentiful. But the imperative verb in the text before us this morning is pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the question we're asking ourselves is not, God, is the pl- harvest plentiful? The prayer we're praying is not, God, please let there be a plentiful harvest. The promise is already there. It's there. It's ready. The prayer we're supposed to be praying is, God, send the right kind of people out into that field. Send laborers out in the field. Now, I'm convinced that this is significant because we don't want the wrong people trying to do the Lord's work. How do you know? I know this because Jesus was particular about whom he chose to be his 12 apostles. And that passage follows this passage. So let's take a look, shall we? It begins in verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, he's going to make the statement, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. What I want you to focus on is I want you to focus on these two statements. Number one, chapter 10 and following, he's working with disciples, okay? Here it says he went throughout all the cities and villages, he taught in their synagogues, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed every disease and every affliction. Where have we seen that before? If you've been attending this church for the last two years, about two years ago we saw this. Flip all the way back to chapter 4 with me real quick. This whole thing got started with that exact same statement. Tail end of chapter 4 says verse 23. Now, again, I want you to back up right before verse 23. What you find there is Jesus calling the first disciples to follow him. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. He gets Peter and a couple other guys. They're following him. So we have an emphasis on discipleship. Then we have a statement here in verse 23, and it says Jesus went throughout all of Galilee. And then what does it say? Exact same thing as what we encounter at the tail end of chapter 9. He taught in their synagogues, He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed every disease and every affliction. The wording in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, is identical word for word as what we encounter in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. So, in between Matthew chapter 4, tail end of Matthew chapter 4, and the tail end of Matthew chapter 9, we've got this section in which Jesus gives his signature sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Following that, we've got three chapters. We've got chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. He gives his teaching. He gives his proclamation of the gospel. Following that, we have two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, in which he then goes out and demonstrates his power over disease and death, over every type of affliction, healing people. So in between his teaching and his healing, we have these two bookend statements that this is what he did. So this is Jesus' mission. This is his goal. And now he wants to extend that mission, which we're going to see in the weeks ahead, through the 12 apostles. What can we conclude from that? Again, look closely at Matthew chapter 9. 
If you look at verse 37, it says, then he said to his disciples. Very first word of Matthew chapter 37 connects verse 37 to the verse preceding it. So let's look at verse 36. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds. The when there, that is an adverb relating to time, meaning that when he saw what he saw, he made a statement to the crowds. So you look back at verse 35, and the connection is very simple. Verse 35 says he went throughout all of Galilee, and so he saw the crowds. Verse 36 says when he saw those crowds, when he encountered these people, he was moved with compassion, and as a result of that compassion, he then turns to his disciples, and he asks them to pray for a good harvester, for the right kind of people to go out into the harvest. So Jesus' teaching and healing ministry is clearly to be extended through the apostles into the rest of the world, through you and me. So let's look at Jesus for a second, shall we? He is the chief harvester. He is the primary laborer. He is the Lord of the harvest. So let's look at what he says here. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching. Number one, he is teaching in the synagogues. Number two, he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And number three, he is healing every disease and every affliction. Teaching is the first thing that Jesus does. He teaches. Now, you encounter, all the way through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you encounter this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then it becomes rather specific, particularly in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. They begin to accuse Jesus of being Satan. If you look at the passage right before it, it says, As they were going away, behold, demon-pressed man was, mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The crowds marveled. They were impressed. They're like, wow, this is incredible. And look at the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees' statement regarding Jesus is this. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. They slander Jesus. Jesus goes out, he heals people, he teaches, and the Pharisees' response to him is, he's the devil. Why would you say that? Here's a guy who's doing good. He's volunteering his time in the synagogue. He's teaching. He's informing. He's proclaiming. He's healing. Over and over again, Matthew makes a statement, he healed everything that was brought to him. I mean, the whole nation of Israel gets word, the getting is good up in Galilee. They're dragging their loved ones up there. They're getting up there as fast as they can. Anybody who's sick, anybody who has a disease, anybody who's hurting in any way, I mean, if they can walk, great. If not, they're throwing them on donkey carts. It doesn't matter. They're trying to get them up to see this prophet that has arisen in the northern part of Israel so that he can heal them. And the scriptures clearly teach Jesus from sunrise to sunset, he was healing people. He was blessing people. People who could never have walked, people who could never have seen, people who could never have heard, people who were oppressed by demons, every disease, every affliction, leprosy, paralysis, it didn't matter. He healed it. Is that not a good thing? Is that not what we want? Is it not better for our country to have all of the people in our country healed? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And yet the Pharisees accuse him of being Satan. Why? 
because he taught in their synagogues. Josephus makes the statement that all of first century religious life was built off of the Pharisees' teaching. They were the ones that were held in high esteem and high regard. Josephus makes the statement that all the worship in the synagogues, all the practices of the Jews in the first century are largely based off of the Pharisees' exposition and teaching of the scriptures. So what happens that makes the Pharisees so mad at Jesus? Is it that Jesus is a good guy and they're the bad guys and they just naturally have to go at each other like this? No. Jesus is the good guy. The Pharisees are the bad guys. But Jesus is the one that draws first blood. You may have forgotten, but in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 20, Christ makes the statement as he begins his Sermon on the Mount. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he just say? Hey, you know those smart religious people? They're going to hell. Those people that you think are so spiritual and so holy, they got it all figured out. In fact, they're the ones that give you your teaching upon which your entire order of church is built. They don't know anything. And if you don't get it more figured out than what they've got it figured out, you're just as doomed as they are. Now, you're a Pharisee or a scribe. Do you think you like to hear that? No, by no means. Are they excited that he's healing people? Yes. He's healing people. Cool. He called you damned to hell. Oh, I don't like to hear that. And he didn't just stop there. He began to challenge everything that they taught. Which, if you'll recall, in Matthew chapter 5, immediately beginning in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Verse 22, but here's the correct teaching. He begins over and over and over again to take what the Pharisees are teaching and to confront it and to expose it as being false. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Well, guess what? That's, you've got the wrong teaching. Pharisees have just taught you the wrong thing. He does it again with lust. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But here's the correct teaching. He does it with divorce. You have said whoever divorces his wife, you've heard that it was also said whoever divorces his wife, let me give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you, correct teaching. Over and over and over, he does this again. And he doesn't just stop there confronting the Pharisees' teaching. He flat out calls them hypocrites. He says they say one thing, they practice one thing, but in their hearts, they're actually something else. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And he goes on to call out the hypocrites. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you give to the needy, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Who's he talking about there? In every single one of those descriptions, he's calling out the Pharisees. They're the ones standing on street corners praying so that people can see them. They're the ones making a big show out of giving their money and putting it in the offering plate so that other people can see them. They're the ones that when they fast, they try to make themselves look as hungry and as miserable and as pathetic as possible so people say, hey, what's the problem with you? Oh, I'm fasting. And then they'll say, oh, well, good for you. You're so holy. Over and over and over again, Jesus is calling out the religious establishment in his day. He picked the fight. He started the argument. We read here, Jesus heals a guy, and they say he's Satan. And immediately our reactions be like, man, why you got to be ragging on Jesus? Like, he's just, he's just a good guy. And their response would be, man, why is Jesus picking on us? 
This is the context of the harvest. This is the context in which Jesus says he saw people harassed and helpless. He is teaching in their synagogues. He is talking not to just random pagans out on the street corners. They're certainly in view. He certainly wants those people to come and know him and have a personal relationship with him. But he is confronting church people. He's talking about people who are not completely a-religious or non-religious. He's talking about people who are very religious, who go to synagogue every Saturday. They're active in church. That's a part of the harvest. And he calls them out. Number two, he he says he was teaching in their synagogues. Number two, he is proclaiming the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? Over and over and over again, Jesus presents himself as Lord. First, he does it when he calls out the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, they teach this, but I'm telling you, this is how it really is. In other words, he claims an authority for himself, which they, they don't even claim. He takes it to the next level. But in case you're like, eh, I don't know, Josh, that's kind of loosey-goosey. Recall what he says at the tail end of his Sermon on the Mount when he begins to give instructions about judging and, and obeying and so forth and so on. He makes a statement, and this is probably the most powerful one. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to heaven. Now, that's a loaded term. You and I read that, and we know it's a loaded term. They knew, they, even more so than us, they knew it was a loaded term in the first century. In the Old Testament, they had a word for God, for, for the, the second person of the Trinity, Yahweh. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that that word was so holy that as they were making copies of the Old Testament, the, transcribing the Old Testament, making copies to send off to different synagogues, they would come to this word Yahweh, and they thought it was so holy, they didn't even want to write it. So what they did is they substituted a word for Yahweh. They substituted the word Adonai, which is Lord. Jesus calls himself Lord, which to everybody in this day and age, they know exactly what he's saying. And he makes it explicitly clear, you want to go to heaven? Well, not everyone who calls me Lord even is going to heaven. And this is a fact that is not lost on the disciples. As we saw in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, when people came to him for healing, they would fall down at his feet and they would say, have mercy upon me, Lord. They called him Lord. They called him Son of God. They called him Son of David. So the crowds clearly got it. They knew who he was. What Jesus is doing is he is correcting the false interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in addition to that, he is declaring himself to be God, the one that you have to come to to have a personal relationship You have to place your faith in him. You have to trust in him. And it is in him and only in him that you find the forgiveness of sins. There is no other name, as it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might, that is, whereby it is even possible to be saved. If you want to go to heaven, Good news. God the Father wants you to go to heaven. And his desire for that is so strong 
that he sent his son, number one, to confront the error of the scribes and the Pharisees, to confront wrong teaching, and two, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That is a living embodiment of the Father's love for you. Sometimes we talk about God in church and uh, we think, yes, God loves us. And we talk about it almost at a distance. It's true. We understand he died on the cross. He loved us so much he was willing to take our place, to die in our place. I mean, who does that? Well, Jesus does that. I want to make this very personal to you. He did not die on the cross in our place. He died on the cross in your place. It's true he died for all of us. Let's not think of it that way. Let's not just think of it that way. He loves you. And you tend to probably think about it in terms of, yes, yes, he loves us all. He lo-. No, listen, you specifically. He knows your name. He knows the number of tears you're going to cry in your lifetime. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he keeps track of your tossings and your turnings. And every moment you're in anguish, every moment you're in anxiety. He knows it. And as much as your cares weigh upon you, they weigh way more heavily upon him. Every time you encounter loss, every time you encounter tragedy, every time you encounter heartache, he saw it coming and it moved him way more deeply than it will ever move you. Which is why it says in the very next phrase, he healed every disease and every affliction. That's the truth of what Jesus is doing. The very next verse says, I'm on the wrong page. The very next verse says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That word compassion is a very powerful word in the Greek language. It talks about this churning this deep down in your gut, just emotional wrenching of your stomach. Have you ever been so upset that you just felt like you were going to vomit? Have you ever been so heartbroken that you just, your whole body just sort of seemed to drain of energy and you just felt sick to your stomach, you just felt horrible and nauseous and you're just heartbroken, heartsick? That's exactly what this word says. He sees the crowds and he's heartbroken. Why? Because they are harassed and helpless. Well, what does that mean? It makes a statement, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, like I said, th- these people have shepherds. These, these people have, quote unquote, pastors. These people have individuals who are teaching them the word of God oh, that's right, Jesus isn't satisfied with it. A, a sheep belongs with a flock. Sheep gather together in flock. They, they are very communal type creatures. They, they like to stick together. 
when sheep scatter, they become incredibly vulnerable. They are easily confused, disoriented, and on top of that, they're extremely stubborn. Sound like anybody you know. They want to do their own thing. They are trying to find their way back to the flock, but they're actually incredibly weak. They don't run that fast. They eat grass. They don't have claws. There's no real way to defend themselves. They're big, fluffy, slow-moving creatures. Prime picking for a wolf. When Jesus makes the statement, they're sheep harassed and helpless. They're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and you understand sheep without a shepherd. You understand sheep that are being allowed to just scatter and disperse and go their own way. And then you understand they're harassed and helpless. Well, who harasses helpless sheep? Predators. Predators do. Now, again, as we've already seen, he's talking about people who are not unreligious. He's talking about people who are very religious. They go to a synagogue and they're preyed upon by merciless Pharisees, scribes, who seek their own glory, their own self-exaltation. And as a result of that, always trying to come up with novel interpretations of the scripture, which did nothing but to place excessive burdens upon these people, burdens that they found it difficult to keep, laws, extra, extra rules that were nowhere in the Bible. And furthermore, these Pharisees, these scribes, set themselves up as the final arbiter between you and God. They are the final judge of your relationship with the Father. You obey all these rules and laws that we put on the scriptures, you're good. You disobey them, well, we're not so sure. So you have a whole nation of people breaking their necks, breaking their backs, believing that they can actually work hard enough to earn the Father's favor. It is in this context in which Jesus turns to his disciples. Moved with grief, the very pit of his stomach, having just gone out and picked a fight with the Pharisees, having just confronted the false teaching of his day, in which he says to the disciples, we need more guys. Pray that God would send us some more guys. So I'd like to offer you a few conclusions this morning. The harvesters that we're praying for they're going to have to have some guts. They're going to have to have some courage. They're going to have to kind of be itching for a fight. They're going to have to keep their eyes open. They're going to have to identify who it is that is twisting and distorting the truth of the Father, and they're going to have to be willing to go straight at those individuals, to challenge it, to correct it. That's an attribute of a harvester. Say, I don't know about that, Josh. I want you to just remember Christ's statement in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he reemphasizes it again when he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. 
Why, why do you suppose that's one of the final Beatitudes before he then picks a fight with the Pharisees? Why do you suppose he says that's one of the true things of happiness in life is when people slander you and gossip about you and decry you and defame you and tell everyone that you're an evil, bad person when all you're doing is upholding the truth of Jesus Christ. He says that because that's exactly what he's about to get ready to do. So when we're praying for harvesters, when we're asking God to send out people in the harvest, here's what we need. We're going to need people who don't care what the world thinks of them. Their first and primary desire is to bring honor and glory to Jesus, to satisfy the Father, to proclaim the truth, regardless of what people say about them. In fact, expecting to be slandered, expecting to be slammed, expecting to be criticized. We're going to need people with thick skin. We're going to need people who are so self, they're so assured in God's word and what the Father says about them. They don't care what other people think because they already know what the most important person in the room thinks. And his opinion is the only one that matters. So we're going to need people who are willing to pick a fight. And you hear that and you're like, eh, that sounds so, like, you know, confrontational. We're Canadians, you know. We, we say, sorry, we're polite. We don't like to, you know, you know, have these kinds of discussions. I understand that. Remember that you're not the one picking the fight. You see, the world was always meant to know the Father. God's word has stood the test of time. He has been there from the beginning. He has always called people into a true and real relationship with himself. In point of fact, the people who picked this fight were the individuals who attempted to swerve humanity away from God. Individuals to this day who are still trying to deceive and corrupt the truth of Scripture. They're the ones who pick the fight. They don't play by the rules. They don't care about truth. They can distort and twist. They can slander and gossip. They can lie. They can throw all the mud up in the air. Guess what? We play by the rules. But they're the ones that pick the fight, which means we at least, the very most, at the very least, have to have the courage to speak back, the faith to stand up for what is true. And it's going to feel like you're picking a fight because the whole world believes B, but B is false and A is true. So it feels like B is sort of there and it's always been there and it's like the predominant thing, but I tell you, it's not. So when you stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ, you feel like you're picking a fight, but the truth is you're really not, but it will feel that way. And that's exactly what we need. We need people who are willing to stand up for the truth of Scripture. We need people who are going to trust in what God the Father says. They're going to be assured in his word and not in the opinions of others. And lastly, and this is really where it gets personal, we are going to need people who are heartbroken over the lost. C.S. Lewis made the statement, he said that the last great hope of the world is chivalry. Now, you and I, we hear that, we're like, what? That makes no sense. We think Jesus Christ is the last great hope of the world. And it's true. Jesus is the last great hope of the world. 
C.S. Lewis fell in, in love with this idea from the medieval ages, this idea of chivalry, this idea of this knight. And as he studied literature, because C.S. Lewis was a literature professor at, at, at Oxford, as he studied literature, as he looked at these tales, particularly he was in love with King Arthur and, and Camelot and Knights of the Round Table and all this sort of stuff. As he perused the literature, he came to the realization that chivalry was the perfect way to describe Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus Christ was like this war-hawking, tough-talking, just-go-straight-at-him-beat-him-up kind of guy. And it, it also wasn't the case that he was just nothing but perfect compassion and love, 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 fluffy, fluffy, fluffy. There was a balance to Jesus. And when we think about that, we're like, okay, we need to have balance too. We need to find this sort of happy average between being meek on the one hand versus being tough on the other hand. But C.S. Lewis's statement to that was, no, that is not chivalry and that is not who Jesus Christ was. C.S. Lewis made the statement that the Christian ideal is a person who is perfectly ferocious in the right circumstance and perfectly compassionate in the right circumstance. It's not that he's a compromise or an average between two extremes. It's that he is extremely fierce when dealing with certain people, and he is extremely kind when dealing with certain people. You read this statement in which he says, when he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with compassion. His heart breaks. He hurts for these people. And it's that hurt for these people, that tender, loving care to see people come to know the Father, that drives him to be absolutely relentless when he confronts the Pharisees and the scribes. So what we're looking for, guys, when we pray for a harvester, we're not looking for necessarily a mild-mannered man. We're looking for a man of passion. We're not looking for a guy who is very, very worried about what the world thinks of him. We're looking for a believer. We're not looking for a guy who has no convictions. We're looking for a committed Christian. Now, in my description, you didn't hear anything about extensive training in oratory or apologetics, or evangelism. What we're looking for, just somebody that wants to know the true God, who understands how joyful that is and longs for that same joy to be brought into the lives of others. And it is that desire that moves them to speak. So here's the question. Do you have that desire? When we wake up on Monday morning and we go out and get into our cars to get ready for the working week and we behold our neighbors' houses around us, do we think to ourselves, man, they are missing out on something so precious, so special. This is what they need. They need Jesus. Do we think that? Are we moved to the pit of our stomachs with grief over that? 
Perhaps some of you are here and you realize you were in situations in which you kind of chickened out. You had the opportunity to say something, but you just, you lacked the courage. Again, the issue is, how deep is your heartache for people who don't know the Lord? The real secret to the passage here is when it says he was moved with compassion. Do we have compassion? Because every single attribute, every single characteristic that I could come up with for a hard-working harvester in the Lord's harvest all boils down to this one simple fact. Their heart breaks that people don't know the Lord. Is that you? Is that a part of your prayer? Jesus makes a statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why? They don't desire the labor of the harvest. They don't desire the labor of the harvest because their compassion does not reach to the same depths as Christ's does. And as a result of that, Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, it's a funny thing. Whenever I understand from the scripture that God wants me to start asking him for certain things, he begins to do a work in my heart to prepare me to do the very thing that I'm asking him to do. So the final closing thought this morning is don't pray this prayer unless you're really willing to be transformed by it. Of course, my encouragement to you is be transformed by it. I, uh, I got the opportunity this past week to talk to several individuals about about Jesus Christ, who didn't have a relationship with him, don't, don't know him. And it's, it's a fearful thing, but it is the most thrilling thing. It, it's the thing that you do when you feel like your walk with God is maybe getting just a little bit boring. You need something to kind of spice things up. I'm telling you, nothing brings more joy Nothing brings more happiness than watching a person's eyes for the first time truly open when they really get it. You see that miracle of God shining light into their heart of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You get a front row seat to something supernatural. And when you see that, when you get it, when you see that the other person gets it, it's the greatest feeling in the world. The thrill of victory is way better than the sting of defeat. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus promises ultimate victory no matter what. So my prayer for you is that you would pray this prayer and be changed by it. Let's bow for a word of prayer.